This is Patrick Wanner, celebrity life coach, human behavior expert, and clinical hypnotherapist, PhD. Does good and evil exist in all of us? When we look back over history, there's been amazing examples of atrocities committed by humans against other humans, be it in the Holocaust, Abu Ghraib, or even in the era of Idi Amin. In the latest movie of Batman, The Dark Knight, we see the Joker. And the Joker, played by Heath Ledger, is a gritty, psychopathic, cold-blooded, murdering clown who has no empathy. He's a sadist with no apparent conscience. What's interesting, though, is the fascination that we seem to have with characters such as the Joker. Throughout many movies, we often tend to resonate with the villain, such as the evil Darth Vader, or the Joker, or even the Terminator, Catwoman, or Star Wars, Palpatine. Sometimes we find ourselves actually rooting for the villain. Why is this? Where does this fascination come? And is it true that good and evil exist in all of us? Based on my own work, my own experience, and my own philosophies, I believe that good and evil exists in all of us. But to go deeper in my studies, I refer back to a, another research, probably one of the world's most famous research studies done into human behavior and the act of good and evil. In 1971 at Stanford University, researchers led by Professor Philip Zimbardo simulated or created a simulated prison in the basement of the campus psychology building. And what they did was randomly assign 24 students to be either prison guards or prisoners for two weeks. In a matter of just a few days, the guards had become swaggering and sadistic to the point where they placed bags over the prisoners' heads, forced them to strip naked, and encouraged them to perform sexual acts. Now, this Stanford experiment has become a landmark. Professor Zimbardo led the study so many years ago, back in 1971, and he's since then authored numerous books in helping people to understand human behavior and what possibly turns us to be good or evil. Now, Professor Zimbardo is internationally recognized as the voice and face of contemporary American psychology. Other than the classic Stanford Prison Experiment, he's authored numerous books, including The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil, and his latest book, which has just been released, The Time Paradox. Professor Philip Zimbardo is Professor Emeritus at Stanford University. Professor Zimbardo, first, how is it possible to even account for all of the actions that are committed by humans? What do you, how do you explain that? Oh, no, we can't account for all of it. I mean, what psychology tries to do is tries to understand how most people, how the majority behave in particular uh, conditions under certain search, uh, circumstances. Um, but I, I would get back to your opening question about the fascination with evil. Uh, and surely uh, this is something that is deep within the human psyche that we, we don't like to, to mention. And in all my work, I think that fascination zeroes in on the fascination with power, that, that my definition of evil is it's the exercise of power to intentionally harm, hurt, destroy other people or things. And, and it's, it's that sense of creative evil, that someone does the unthinkable. And once they do the unthinkable, it becomes thinkable and doable. Uh, and so... You it can know, become so, part of us, too, correct? And, and, 
And therefore, well, because once we are aware of it, it, it it's now part of our, our, our mindset. So that, you know, 9-11, what was amazing about 9-11 was not that 3,000 people died at the World Trade Center, but that somebody had the idea to weaponize commercial airlines, fly them into the World Trade Center, and before our eyes, 210-story buildings evaporated. Nobody in the history of the, of the world had ever witnessed that, and, and with the new technology, we witnessed it as it was happening. And so people could not stop watching it, and not only you know day after day when it was played, but for each anniversary... And and it's not that we're we're evil. It's not that you know we're saying, oh my God, look, you know, look how many people died. It's it's looking at this as, you know, here is the ultimate destruction going on before our eyes in ways that we could never have imagined before that moment. Well, what's interesting is that in the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, stated that he believed that good and evil exists in all of us. And this has often been the underlying theme between so much of mythology and movies, the conflict, the inner conflict that probably exists in all of us between good and evil. So the question is, first, if, if good and evil exists within, both of, within all of us, and you said there it's about the human psyche, how does it relate to the brain? Where does it exist within the human brain? Oh, that's, you know, well, we, we don't know that exactly yet. I mean, you know, there are lots of psychologists, as you know, in, um, in the new area of cognitive neuroscience who are lighting up the brain with, um, with the new technology of functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, uh, trying to locate which structures in the brain get activated when people are involved in moral decision-making or, or conformity. Uh, they have not yet gotten around to the point of having research subjects do evil things and see what lights up. You know, the brain is the physical structure that, that obviously is the origin of all behavior. But, you know, the mind is the, if you will, the executive function. And, and my argument in the looser effect is that the human mind has the infinite capacity to make any of us do good or evil, be kind or cruel, be caring or indifferent. And it pushes some of us to become villains. And the good news is it pushes others of us to become heroes. And that's what we saw at 9-11, where we actually saw the opposite. We, here we saw what you just stated, which was this creative inventiveness or this creative capacity of committing a, an evil act on a large scale. Yet on an equally large scale, people in New York City helped and aided others and rescued others and comforted others. So yeah, and, yeah, and it's, the New York City Fire Department, many of them were heroic. I mean, they worked, they worked overtime with no pay. Uh, they were spending hours and hours on that pile. You know, some of them had the duty of, of, of rescuing body parts, fingers, and, you know, of, their, of their fellows. Uh, when I was president of the American Psychological Association the next year, I gave, I gave a presidential citation to one of the Brooklyn Heights firemen, Richie Murray, on behalf of, of all of the firemen who had done such heroic deeds. But, but you know, my argument is you need, you need evil or dire emergencies to bring out the heroism in us. And so, so the, the terrible thing at, at, at Abu Ghraib, the evil that our soldiers did at Abu Ghraib, was counted with the good that Joe Darby did. He's an ordinary army reservist who exposed those evils. But he, he never could have done that had there not been the evil situation that he, he witnessed. 
Yes, and it's interesting because some people refuse to accept that good and evil exists within us, and yet even if we, and usually those people are, are people that are very strong and have deep religious beliefs, and they like to think that it's something outside of us that determines whether we commit an act of good or evil, and yet if we follow the premise of religion that we've all been given free will, to, and we therefore can choose to do good or evil, it must exist within us all. The question is, what is the tipping point? What leads us to commit evil? Yeah, but that's a good, you know, I mean, you know. Is there an answer? There's not a specific answer, but there are, there are clear answers. But, you know, I argue with, with people who say, you know, religion is, is the key for people doing good because most of the evil that has been done in the world over the centuries has been in the name of a god. I mean, you know, the the Inquisition, you know, you know, the and many, many, many of the war, the Crusades, were all about religion, you know. And and my sense is that, you know, religion is a double-edged sword. Religion teaches us compassion and loving, and if you, if you, you know, certainly within with within Christianity, the model of of a a, a Jesus as an all-compassion, loving figure is counted by an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, revenge. Um, uh, and, and, you know, in the Inquisition, the human mind that ha- is the, the origin of so much creativity was perverted to creating instruments and, and techniques of, of uh, torture, you know, that, that, that there was creative evil that, that could break the will, the human will to resist. And so, you know, there were, you know, thousands of people identified as witches who were tortured t- to death, um, you know, in the name of God, in the name of, you know, heresy. And I guess from my perspective, I, I believe that good and evil must exist within us, because even if we accept the concept that there is something outside of us that is evil, such as Satan, the devil, and that person or entity, rather, can tempt us to do evil, well, that means the evil must exist within us for us to be able to do that which is, ties into the concept that we've been given free will. But I'm still curious about what actually is the tipping point. And obviously it can be different for each person in different set of circumstances. But what, for example, was the tipping point, say, for some of the Nazi soldiers who, were, who, were so, who appeared to be so comfortable in committing the atrocities against the Jewish people? Oh, no, okay. In any in any one example, we have to we have to look at, <clears throat> you know, the, the nature of the in, in the looser effect. In my book, I say in order to understand human behavior, we have to we have to appreciate at three levels. What does what does the individual bring into the situation? What does the situation bring out of the, the person? And what is the system that creates those situations? So what people bring into the situation you mentioned in the opening, there are psychopaths. I mean, there are people who have never uh, learned to feel guilt, compassion, empathy, and and a lot of the the cruelty at the top of Idi Amin, maybe Saddam Hussein, other people like that. You know, that level of cruelty, that level of, of bestiality, goes with same thing as you know mass murderers. Um, but you know, but that's a small percentage of all the people who do evil. Most people who do evil do it within 
within the framework of their job. I mean, if you're a guard at Auschwitz, it was your job to do certain kinds of, there were certain rules you had to follow. And you could execute somebody with no feeling because they violated rule number seven. Um, and, you know, Hannah Arendt, in her analysis of Adolf Eichmann, who was in charge of the efficient execution of millions of Jews at Auschwitz, she said, everything we know about this man before he went to Auschwitz, he was normal. Everything we know about him since then, that we have in, he was interviewed you know, while he was on trial, normal. It's only when he was put in that situation, given the job to, to uh, how do you efficiently eliminate you know, so many people, that he then orchestrated these mass murders in a very efficient way. And so he is a monster, but only in that particular situation. And that's the argument, you know, I make about the Stanford Prison Study. You know, we went to great lengths to pick out two dozen college students who were as normal and healthy as possible based on a battery of psychological tests, clinical interviews, and, we, and then we randomly assigned them to be prisoners and guards. So we know on day one, August 14, 1971, we had only good apples that we put into a, a bad barrel. The bad barrel was modeled after the worst of, of American prisons. And the question was, does the goodness of the people, when they're, because they're all starting off good, do they dominate the badness of the place? And the sad answer was, no, quite the opposite. Usually bad situations tend to dominate most people. Not all, but the majority comply, conform, yield, give in. And we don't want to believe that because we want to believe people are basically good. They have free will to choose. Uh, and if you do evil, you choose to do evil. I'm saying in most cases, you're unaware. Evil is a slippery slope. You take a small first step, and then the next step is is a small step. Are you saying that it's not a choice? No, no, it's not a choice. It's not always a choice. No, it's not conscious. You know, I mean... But even if it's unconscious or subconscious, isn't it still a choice? What what is the difference between the person... You mentioned there the reservist at Abu Ghraib, who was the one that exposed it. So he made a conscious choice to say oh. no. Oh, to be a hero is making, is making a conscious choice. To be evil does not involve a conscious choice. To be evil is you're part of a group, and suddenly they're all doing this. They say, come on, join in, or take the picture, or you know, hit this guy. And, and you, you, it, most people do it without serious reflection. When I think of conscious choice, I think about serious reflection. I think about consequences and costs. Should I do it? Will I get caught? Is it the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? And I'm saying most evil is done mindlessly. It's done because everybody is doing it. It's because it's the thing to do in this situation. It's because you want people to like you. Uh, All right. So I, I'd like to just jump in because there's some very important questions I want to ask you here. You've, you've raised the three points. One is when you say that everyone else is doing it, therefore we, we can get in a situation where we lose our sense of identity and individuality. We become part of the group, part of the group. Absolutely. And we've seen that happen in rock concerts, where a whole crowd, or even at a soccer stadium or a football game, where people go crazy and they lose control. Okay. The second thing, because I I still seek an answer for the tipping point, because you talked there about, not only in the Stanford experiment, but even other situations of stress. How does physical, mental, and emotional stress break someone to the point where that they therefore, one day they were so quiet and shy and normal, the next day they are someone that's committed an act of evil and atrocity. Yeah, I mean, it, it, take, take Chow, the, the Korean boy at Virginia Tech. 
you know, I mean, you know, what drove him to do this horrendous deed to kill so many people and kill himself, you know, and, you know, and, and is he unique or when we look at the pattern of there's been a, nearly a dozen school shootings in the last 10 years and, and you say, well, you know, what is common across this? If there's a pattern, there must be a commonality. And in almost all these cases, these were kids who were rejected, they were bullied, they were outcasts, they had they had no friends. And and the, the new situation is in America, everybody has access to guns if they want. And so these are kids who in the past would just be shy, would be you know would be the rejects. And now you have a gun, and they're saying, okay, now we're going to even the score. So, so, and this now, why does this this happen in every country, in other countries? Well, partly it's other countries don't have access to to guns as easily as in America, uh, but also now the media, by portraying school shootings, makes this now thinkable, imaginable to other kids who are bullied. That they, that's an, that's the way you deal with it. You don't you don't suffer in silence. You you strike back. So, are you saying the very fact that we're aware of this? gives us greater possibility, potential, or plausibility of committing these same acts, repeating these same acts? Yeah, absolutely. That is, once we become aware that, that there is a, a new option possible, that when I'm bullied, I don't have to take it. I can, if I have a gun, I can, I can kill the bully, I can kill those who, who didn't support me. You know, that becomes an option. Most people don't act on it. I mean, when I say there's been a dozen, you know, shootings... You know, out of what tens of thousands of high schools, so it's it's still the rare event, but but we're trying to understand both the rare event and the common event, and even though it's a rare event, what I'm saying is we can still understand it. It's not simply let's look at the mind of the murderer. You know, after the Virginia Tech shootings, all the media was focused on let's look at the mind of this Korean boy. You know, here's a here's this crazy kid doing these crazy things. And if you if you listen if you looked at that video that he made he said I warned you and essentially he said I told I needed a friend I needed somebody to talk right. to me here's a kid who lived in a dormitory who ate who had meals in in a place it wasn't a commuting kid he was there all the time and for the for the past year no one had talked to him and he had not talked to a, a single person for a year. So how could that not be noticed? So, so there, there I'm implicating the system. How could you have a college system in which there's a student that doesn't talk to anybody and nobody talks to him for a full year, you know, without somebody recognizing, hey, this is not normal. This so is the sense of isolation, the sense of rejection, the sense of um, being an outsider can easily create resentment, bitterness, anger, and even a sense of revenge. It's almost like a crying out. It is a crying out. It's you know, and I'm saying there are many, many people who feel the same. The big question that that's hard to understand is what is the catalyst for action? What is the catalyst where somebody feels that feels isolated? I mean, I did lots of research early on shyness. Shyness is really a common feature of most most people's lives, especially adolescents. Feel shy, feel rejected. We know bullying is is a common common factor in many of our uh, middle schools. Uh, and but the problem is, what makes somebody react on that to say, okay, now I'm going to I'm going to kick butt. I'm going to you know take action to my own hands. But you know the same thing is we don't understand what is the catalyst for heroic action. So so for me, you know what psychology has to begin to address is how do these motives get 
get translated into action? What is what is the trigger? You said the tipping point, and we don't know. I mean, we meaning no one in psychology knows. What there is are the, a few catalysts. You've mentioned them. One is stress. One yeah. is obviously, obviously stress. The second is you've used the example there of the boy at Virginia Tech who's isolated, who's rejected, who's angry, who then doesn't see any hope. Right. Now, he's because I think this ties into your new book about about yeah. the time paradox. Right. He now is in such he's in the present moment to the extent that he feels complete despair. He can't remember the past and if he thinks of the future, he it's doesn't hopeless. see the situation changing, correct? Right. Hopeless, right. He's trapped in what what I call the present fatalism. See, there's two ways to be present-oriented. You could be present hedonist, which means you take pleasure in life. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, good friends, good times. Instant time. gratification, I call it. Instant gratification, carpe okay. diem. But you can also be present fatalistic, which is nothing I do makes a difference. You know, my life is controlled by, by fate, by Allah, if you will, if you're Muslim. Also by, by the bullies, by, the social, by welfare. And, and you give up. And so that's, that leads to a sense of learned helplessness. Nothing I do makes a difference. Now that I have a gun, it makes a difference. Little kids can take on big kids, and all you need is a gun. What you're saying here is there are some, some things that seem to be possible factors in the tipping point. Stress, rejection, isolation, sense of helplessness, hopelessness, powerlessness. And you use the word fatalism. This is my fate. I'm completely helpless. I cannot change it. Maybe I can have a sense of power with the gun, but sometimes it's more about just wanting to hurt other people because I feel hurt, correct? Yeah, absolutely. But what I'm saying is you've identified a set of predispositions that when somebody has that composite, then we can, we can predict they are at risk for doing something dangerous. But not everybody who has that, that profile carries it into action. So all I, all I mean to say is we don't know why two people who have that same profile, one of them will take action and one will just, you know, suck it up and suffer in silence. Yeah, recently I spoke with Dr. Peter Bregan, who is known as the conscience of psychiatry, and he's also written books on medication. His newest book is Medication Madness, and he talks about the dangers of antidepressants resulting in death, suicides, murder, and acts of violence. Did you see any patterns of the use of antidepressants with these violent incidents? Uh, no, no, because we we didn't we actually didn't look at it. Um, I mean, we we never we never focused on the, you know the role of the role of medication or drugs uh, in any of these in any of these things. That could be another trigger, could it not? Yeah, we we yeah we just we just didn't did not look at it. Essentially, what I'm looking at is I'm a social psychologist, so I'm overemphasizing the importance of situational factors. What are the things outside of a person? What are the things? in addition to a person's dispositions, their personality, their traits, their character style, that, that can trigger, you know, these reactions. And, and, the, and so we know from, from the prison study, it's playing a role, it's following rules, it's being part of a group where the group has a, a social norm of your guard. The social norm is, you know, we have to punish prisoners, teach them who's boss. Um, but, but it's also being de-individuated, I call it. That is a right. sense of anonymity, that nobody knows who I am and nobody cares. So just putting people in uniforms, you know, takes, takes away their individuality. And, and the, one of the keys is the psychological perception of dehumanization of others. 
that is thinking of others as prisoners, as objects, as gooks, as geeks, as you know, as you know, blacks, you know, uh, the N word. Once, once you stigmatize other people, thinking thinking of them as less than human, then 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 uh, you get into the mode of um, moral dis- moral disengagement. You disengage your morality. So usually you're a good person, but when I now look at this person and I don't see a person, I see an object, all of my usual sentiments and values and compassion go out the window. You know, this is just, you know, an Iraqi prisoner. This is just, you know, an object. This is just an, like an animal. So, Which so is I the have... whole way that we go to war. We go to war by not looking at their faces which is exactly what happened in the propaganda that was conducted during the Second World War. Whether, oh, yeah, whether it was by the Germans or by the Allies, where we created the other person to look like a monster, they were no longer human, or they became faceless. And we see that in movies done by Hollywood, where they'll create the whole armies to look almost faceless. Oh, in- absolutely. You know, there's a wonderful book that, that your listeners uh, you know, should, should get... Uh, should get. It's called Faces of the Enemy by Sam Keen, K-E-E-N. And what he does is he presents in this book a whole raft of the propaganda that every nation uses, visual propaganda, posters um, in, in the media, to prepare citizens to hate and, and soldiers to want to kill the enemy. So it's the enemy as rapist of our women, enemy as enemy of our guard, enemy as as, anim, as enemy of our way of life, and, you know, uh, enemy as insect reptile. So it's all the images that that the propaganda wants to put into our minds, so that we will develop what Sam Keen calls the hostile imagination to hate and want to kill. Which is what you know. Which is the way that we go to war. Again, I say the same. That's how we go to war by seeing the enemy as faceless. They become right, absolutely. But, but see, but that's what I call the systems influence. So here is a, this is top down. This is the government through its propaganda, through its media wings. Now, the system has the power, has the resources to create that propaganda, to promote those books, to put it, to put on, on email, um, I mean, to put out on mail. If, if you look at the run-up to the war in Iraq, if you look at the covers of Life magazine and Time magazine, and you see the transformation of Saddam Hussein uh, and, and uh, you know, and uh, the, 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 evil emp- the, uh, the evil empires, uh, that you can see that over time, magazines that we think are relatively objective, you know, they were being fed by the Bush administration these views that this is uh, this is evil, more and more evil. You know, the president of North Korea is and one of the things is Doctor Evil, um, so, so that that it becomes part of the way we think. And pretty soon we say, yeah, we want to go to war. We want to kill those people. They don't deserve to be alive. So dehumanization is really a key element in certainly in mass in all mass murder in in, in preparation for war. Now, based on all of your studies, because you've been studying this now for almost 40 years. Too long, too long. But, but you've come up with amazing <laughs> findings, so I know that it's well worth, it's very rewarding. Is there a difference between the evil that exists between a male and a female? For example, and I'll just clarify my question, can a man commit more evil deeds than a woman? Uh, yeah, because we have more opportunities. You know, in, in general, you know, most evil in the world, most violence, most aggression, most war, most genocide, has been done by men. But that's in part because 
we put men in positions in the military, in, in, uh, in police, uh, in position, and we give them weapons, and we train them. Um, but also the whole training in almost every society is for men to be domineering, dominant warriors. Um, you know, one of the highest levels of violence in the world uh, over the years has been in Scotland. And it's been in Scotland, and research shows the reason is that in sheep herding societies like Scotland, you know, uh, your main enemy is people who are going to steal the sheep. And so the sheep herder has to get a reputation of being a killer. That you, 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 you take one of my sheep and you die, and your whole family dies. And so lots of the, you know, the clan wars were all about honor. And, and, and so essentially, you had to send out a message to everybody that if you touch one of my sheep, you die. And, and, you know, and your family dies, and I blow up your castle, and, you know, or your home, whatever. Um, you know, so I'm saying, so there's a case in which, um, uh, you know, violence then becomes part of, of a whole culture, part of a, a way of life. And the people who are doing it say, it's just protective. You know, I have to put out this image, you know, because, you know, I don't want to kill anybody, but if they steal my sheep, I have nothing left. Well, other than societal and cultural programming, which has made the male more aggressive and more violent, is or are there innate gender differences relating to violence? Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I don't know that. I don't know the research. I can't, I can't answer that. Yeah. Well, here's something that I've noticed, and, and this is just you know, primarily through observation. You watch little boys and little girls at the beach, and the little boy will pick up a rock and throw it over his head. The girl will tend to just sit there and play. She's more into being. The boy's definitely more active. And when you see kids doing, being uh, mean or nasty or even violent or harmful or cruel to animals, it tends to be more boys than girls. Yeah, I mean, in general, that's true. That is, but, it, but it's a complicated, complicated interaction of you know, genetic inheritance plus, again, the situation. We encourage boys. The games we give them to play involve physical activity. For girls, it's really fine movements. So, you know, we're encouraging girls to do painting, to do drawings, you know, you know essentially knitting, sewing. You know, and, and for the boys, we, we want them to be physically active. Um, and, you know, and, you know, it's only recently now that girls are beginning to play, in quote, boys' sports. Uh, but, but um, you know, I, I guess I want to believe, because I love women, I want to believe that, yeah, women, women are, are less prone to be, to be aggressive. But well, I, wouldn't I, the hormonal profile of a woman support that? I mean, estrogen has a very different effect on the body versus what testosterone. Testosterone will make you assertive, aggressive, competitive, and pushes you to action. Uh, yeah, but but see, but I I've also done research where I have women who are put in a situation to harm other women under under rationale that the other women are trying to be creative under stress, and and their job was to stress them. And and for half of the women, I, women for half of the group of women, I I created a state of deindividuation. We put them in in hoods, we put them in the dark, we put them in a small group, and those and those who were Whose, whose anonymity, who, who we made feel anonymous, were twice as aggressive as other women who were randomly assigned to be identifiable. So, so just taking women alone 
if if you create some of the same psychological state, that is, A, you give them permission, the situation, the authority gives them permission to be aggressive, one, and secondly, you make them feel anonymous. Nobody knows who I am, and so I can get away with anything. And many of these women were aggressive and enjoyed and, and enjoyed giving shocks. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the the victims were Confederates; they didn't really get shocked, but it was realistic enough so everybody believed it. Are you referring to the study by colleague Dr. Stanley Milgram? Yeah, Stanley Milgram and I were high school classmates. Right. So he did this at Yale, though, right? Where he basically set up experiments where the subjects were allowed to exert an electric shock on the participant, the other student. Right. Yeah. His research is the classic research on the power of the situation. Back in the 1960s, uh, he tested a thousand ordinary people from New Haven, Connecticut, and Bridgeport, Connecticut. None of them were students. He did, he did half of the research at Yale and New Haven and half at Bridgeport. And these were m mostly men, 20 to 50 years old. He did one experiment with women. And the women, I should say, were exactly the same as men. And very simply, what the study was for the Ulysses, who may not may not know, it was the authority says we want to see whether or not we can help people improve their memory by punishing errors. Right. And so, so one of so the the subject, the, the real the real subject in the experiment is the teacher, and the learner is a confederate. And every time the learner makes a mistake, he's got to get punished. But the punishment escalates from a small 15 volts all the way up to 450 volts, which is almost lethal. And the question is, who would go all the way? And, and throughout, the, the subject is complaining to the experimenter who's in the lab coat. You know, I don't want to do this. I'm not that kind of person. The experimenter simply says, you must go on. You have a contract. It's part of the, part of the rules. And, and two-thirds, two out of three of these Adults, 20 to 50 ordinary people, went all the way to 450 volts. And, and uh, two-thirds of the women as well when it was an experiment with all women. And in fact, if, if you come into the experiment and uh, they say, oh, uh, we're running a little late, and you observe somebody like you go all the way, then 90% of the time you go all the way. If you see people rebel, then 90% of the time you rebel. So, so again, just so, so that people understand what this was, the concept was that if someone uh, gave an incorrect answer to a question, right. the subject was ordered to deliver a shock, and then progressively they delivered more and more powerful shocks up to the whopping 450 volts where they knew that would kill the other person. And you're saying that still, two even though it wasn't real, obviously, but they didn't know that. Right. The victims were actually actors who moaned and wailed. Right. But you're saying that both with the study with men and the study with women, Two-thirds of both groups went all the way and pressed the, the, the lethal switch to kill the other person. Right. right. Well, it wasn't clear it was killing them, but certainly, uh, well, I should say, when it gets up to 330 volts, the guy screams. He's in another room. He screams, and there's a thud. And, and, and then there, he doesn't respond at all after that. So he's either unconscious or, could, or worse. When you're giving anything above 330 volts, you cannot be helping him improve his memory because he's not responding. But, but that's where you get trapped in the situation, and you just do it. That's a study of blind obedience to authority. So the authority says you must go on, you must go on. Right, and yet at the same time, there's still the other point, which you and I talked about right at the very beginning when we talked about the fascination with evil. You talked about the fascination with power. Because, right. again, when you are pressing that button and giving someone an electric shock, you have the power over someone else. Right. 
And this seems to be one of the underlying themes, not just in terms of evil and violence, but even in terms of another area that I tend to specialize in, which is relationships. Why do so many men in power and influence, positions of power, influence and authority, cheat on their wife or their partner? Is it really about sex? It's very it's no, it's hardly ever about sex. No, it's hardly ever about sex. I mean, it's about sex, you, you know. If it's, it's about power, correct? Yeah, if, you know, if it's about sex, you, you, you go to a you know erotic massage place, you know, or you, know, you go to a you know top. There's certainly enough places in our society, you know, the idea of cheating on your wife, developing a whole other relationship with another woman, you know, is about the power to do it. You know, I can do it. That's why. That's why I will do it. Uh, but even in, in the relationships, it, see. Once you are heavily focused on power, you have to keep demonstrating to yourself that you have the power. So you have the power to say, shut up, you know, to your wife, be quiet, you know, uh, I don't want your friends coming here, I don't want your family. So long before the, the guy starts cheating, he's demonstrating that he has the power to control this woman, to make her do whatever he wants. And at that point, she's not the guy he married, and he, she's not the woman that, that, that he w- w- fell blindly in love with. She is just like a subject in his experiment. He's going to see how much he can get her to do you know, his bidding. Uh, and at so that are you point, saying that cheating is about power? It's heavily Or just about. in this situation where the man already has a position of power and authority? You remember Henry Kissinger, who I always thought of as a relatively ugly man. Uh, when he was Secretary of State, and there were all these pictures of these really attractive women. And somebody said, Henry, how come? And he says, it's only about the aphrodisiac of power. And that's the sentence. Power itself is intoxicating. That people want to be close to... I mean, you know... The, you know, the, the groupies for you know for for uh, rock stars. You you want to be close to celebrities. You want to be close to power. I mean, you know. Uh, well, I'm actually doing some interviews on that for for the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is being released on DVD, and they've approached me to discuss why are women attracted to the bad boy image and why they're attracted to rock stars. And this is where I'm saying they're attracted to the alpha male. It's the, yeah. as you put it, the intoxication of power, the aphrodisiac of power. Yeah. It's being close to somebody who has this power to do whatever he wants. So for for some, it's just the money, you know. And but it, you know, but it, it's you know, the evolutionary psychologists would say, well, it's women want to be close to the alpha male because he's going to be done. You know, it's not at the level. You know, I want him to have my. I want to have my babies with him. I just want to be seen with him. I just want to be close to him. I just want you know to feel that that intoxication of power. Um, you know, on, on American Idol, you know, why do people like this, this I forget, it's the British guy, you know, who, who puts everybody down? And, and amazing, it's like, you know, gee, you know, you're supposed to be polite. And so he, by violating that expectation, he said, no, you know, you're, you're terrible. It's the worst voice I ever heard. You know, why are you alive? And, and for some people, they resonate to that. Donald Trump. Donald Trump, this is an ugly man. This is an ugly man in spirit. And, and I hope he doesn't hear you because he's going to come after you, but that's okay. Keep going. No, but I'm saying, but on his program, You're right. yeah, on his program, why do people watch this? His whole thing is demeaning other people. And, you know, and so essentially it's maybe, maybe you know, what are all the times we, we have individually have been slighted that we would have wanted to say, up yours, and we don't. We suck it up. And here's a guy who says, up yours. He could say it to anybody because he's so rich and, and, and powerful. So, again, I, I'm saying here are people who at some level we don't respect, we don't like personally, but 
we admire and get attached to the, the, the it's their display of power. All right, so then the, the next key question is, what is it about the human psyche that attracts us to power? Is it because we feel secure and safe yeah. being around the power? Well, yeah. I mean, we'd all, we'd all like power to achieve our ambitions, power to get what we want in life, not necessarily you know, in evil ways, but very few of us have the power we want. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough control over things in our life. You know, uh, you know life is, is variable and fickle, uh, and you'd like to be able to say, I want this and get it, you know, uh, rather than I have to deal with that in fantasy. And you look at some people, and they look like they get whatever they want. They get the beautiful for men. They get the beautiful women. They get the beautiful cars. They get the the great job. They don't have to work very hard. Uh, and you know, on the other hand, you know, we don't say, well, but aren't they really superficial? What do they stand for? What are their values? And right, so, and you're you're raising three points here because one is the fantasy. I don't have the power, but I can have the fantasy of the power by living vicariously through someone else. Right. The, right. The, the second aspect is obviously the association of power, and I guess the third is the feeling of security and stability being around someone who has power, yeah, or, yeah. and the compensation of not having power by being around someone who does have power. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting um, observation made many years ago by a famous psychologist, Bruno Badelheim. He was in Nazi concentration camps for, for actually a short time at the beginning of, of the, the Holocaust. And, and wrote some books about it. And he had, he had a concept that he, he, he developed from Anna Freud, Freud's daughter, called identification with the aggressor, that a lot of the prisoners, he said, would identify with these terrible Nazi guards that, that you know, uh, he even has a thing like uh, when, if, if like a button or something came off a Nazi guard's uniform, they would pick it up and like put it on, you know, carry it in their pocket to have a piece of the power so in a concentration camp or as in prisons, guards have total power over prisoners' lives. And instead of hating these guards, he, what he's saying is some of the prisoners identified with the aggressor. And, and Anna Freud had said earlier that this is also like part of, of, of the anti-Semitic Jew. That is, you know, people who... Prisoner that hates himself? Yeah. Prisoner, people who, who are, know that others despise them but then come to accept that, you know, and, and, and by identifying the aggressor, you try to minimize the gap between you and this powerful aggressor. Well, wasn't there also groups within the concentration camps, groups of Jews that were informants? Oh, sure. You know, but, but one of the interesting things about the concentration camps is Jehovah Witnesses were one of the few groups who, as, as a sets of individuals who di who never informed who who never um who never worked with the Nazis against any of the other prisoners so there's a case you brought up earlier that that's one case where a religious belief but i think also kind of a social bonding ha had them see each other as as a, a unit within this you know this mass extermination thing but doesn't that go against what you've just been telling me in the sense that these people were able to make conscious choices not to engage in either what's morally wrong or what's evil oh no no but, yeah, but th no but that's heroic i'm i'm saying i'm saying oh. the, the hero make the heroism always involves a conscious choice because you see the evil and you say do i give in uh, or do i oppose it 
uh, and what I'm saying is for evil, it's often not a conscious reflective choice. It's, it's a seduction, a seduction into evil. It's being drawn in. Well, here's the key question for you then. Based on 40 years of studies, <laughs> what is it that gives the, the hero the power or the ability or what distinguishes him so he can make the conscious choice to not commit the evil and actually become the hero? That is Have you the, found the answer to that? No, that's the $64 question. And in, in, the, in the final chapter of the Lucifer Effect, the, the book goes into great detail about the Stanford Prison Study, about Abu Ghraib, but the final chapter is a celebration of heroism. And to write that, I, I looked at all the research in psychology on heroes and heroism, and there's very little. So I'm calling for, we need research on heroes. We need research on what I call the heroic imagination so that th there is no answer to your question. What makes someone, what makes any particular individual uh, 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 take this heroic action? So, but, and so this is the main thing I am now beginning to do is the, the every, see, and I'm arguing most heroes are everyday ordinary people. You know, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, they are extraordinary people because their whole life is organized around sacrifice. Most heroes are like this guy, Joe Darby. Most heroes are ordinary people who happen to be in a situation where there's an emergent, something emergent, and they take action. But we don't, we meaning psychologists, I mean, all of social science do not have the answer to your question why this person does that and that one doesn't. And, and well, you're saying that there isn't the answer, it's just that we haven't found it yet, and as you continue your studies, I expect you will. Yeah, no, I mean, literally starting next month, my whole professional focus is on trying to understand the heroic imagination and the heroic decisive moment, the moment at which somebody says, I will do it, I will jump on the subway tracks to save this guy, I will blow the whistle against this you know, uh, uh, fraudulent uh, practice in my company, I will expose this immoral behavior. Um, th that's the, literally the main thing I am now going to do for the rest of my career. So here's maybe my, my final question as a way to wrap up. We talked about the intoxication of power, the aphrodisiac of power, and yet what you're about to study, which of course is the hero, the hero is about the other aspect. There's also sympathy, compassion, empathy, rescuing, helping, supporting, lifting, praising, encouraging. Right. Which one gives us greater satisfaction? We all have the capacity right. to do good or evil. Right. We've, we've said that every one of us can fall into the intoxication, the temptation right. of power. Right. Yet we, we also can commit amazing acts and deeds of sympathy, empathy, compassion, sure. Absolutely. et cetera, as, as a human. Which one, as a human, will give us greater satisfaction? Oh, over time, being a hero, there's no doubt about it. I mean, most people, most people who, who do evil uh, feel bad after it. Most people who do evil regret it. Uh, that, you know, the guards in our study who, who did terrible things to the prisoners, you know, afterwards felt guilt, felt, were embarrassed by it. You know, so a lot of the evil, it, it's, it's a turn-on when you're in that situation. You know, it's, you know, you imagine the guys that are involved in a gang rape. You know that is it, it's not planned. It just it, you know just happens, and, and and I'm sure there's no research on it. But I'm sure afterwards they all many of them feel guilty that they know they did a terrible thing. Now, but, obviously, when I asked you that question, I already had the my own answer, which is of course the good acts, the the acts where we're helping humankind is what really fulfills and rewards us and gives us a sense of meaning and makes us 
innately feel good because I do believe within the human psyche there's a part of us that naturally knows this is what will satisfy my soul, not the evil, not the harm, not hurting someone else. And oh, yet, absolutely. Yeah, always, absolutely right on. You know, I, I think there's, a, there's a, a bright white line that we all know about that we know we shouldn't cross that line. And, and when we don't, when we defend the line, when we act heroically, at some very deep level, we feel fulfilled. Uh, and even if other people don't know about it, I mean, you know, you can't be a hero in order to get the reward. You know, you do a heroic deed and then rewards may follow. But, but, but you know for the rest of your life, I, I made a difference. I helped somebody. I mean, I gave an, I gave an organ. I, you know, I, 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 helped, I helped a child, you know, who would, have, who would have gone astray. You know, whatever the heroic deed is, um, that is enriching. I mean, that is what's the best in the human condition. You know, my last argument is the antidote to evil is heroism. You know, right. it, the more the more heroes we can create among our children, among you know, uh, everyday people, then the less evil you're going to have in the world. And and I agree with you 100. percent And I also believe and teach and promote that our greatest sense of satisfaction and reward comes from serving others. Mm-hmm. And I believe that there's within the human psyche there is a hidden, deep desire to express love more than there is to actually receive love. Right. And, and I think that's what rewards us the most. But once again, I am truly grateful for your insight, and I'm curious to, to see what your findings and results will be in your studies of heroism, because I think there's, there's such an interesting link, too, between the human brain and the human psyche. And then there's the aspects that, to this day, we can't fully explain. Why is it so much more rewarding for us to help rather than harm? But sometimes there are things that we don't have a concrete answer to. But I truly commend, honor, and acknowledge and praise your work and, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, interview.